You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. My name is Michael McFall, and I'm the director here at FSI. As 2017 came to a close, thousands of Iranians took to the streets in the largest public protest since 2009. They protested rising food and gas prices and high unemployment. As President Trump tweeted, the world is watching. And they're wondering whether these protests will fizzle out or lead to real political and economic change in Iran. To help us answer that question and many more, we're joined by Dr. Abbas Milani. He is the Hamid and Christina Mogadam Director of Iranian Studies here at Stanford University. He's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where he and I and Larry Diamond have been co-directors of the Iran Democracy Project. He's also a fellow at FSI, where together we run a project called Iran 2040. Check it out on our website. And we are also collaborating on something new called the Middle East Initiative here at FSI, another collaboration with Iranian studies and FSI. So we could not ask for a better person to have with us today. Abbas, thanks for joining the program. It's my pleasure, as always, to be on a program with you and to be working with you at Stanford. Let's start with the big hard question. Tell us why these demonstrations are happening. What happened? What are the root causes? Why now? How do you interpret the original spark that led to these demonstrations? The original sparks are fairly clear. Uh, there was a rise in the price of eggs, uh, and there was a collapse of one financial institution where people lost their savings. So two very concrete things. Eggs. Eggs. And a financial. And a financial. Collapse. And if you remember in one of the conferences you and I organized a few months ago, uh, one of top Iran's top experts on financial systems indicated that one of the vulnerabilities of this regime is the financial system and the banks that are virtually all on the verge of collapse. One of the smaller ones collapsed, people lost their money, and the price of egg increased, and the government began to put in some uh, measures to uh, reduce subsidies on gasoline and some of the other subsidies. Okay. That blew everybody's, <laughs> essentially, level of tolerance. It was a tipping point. It was a tipping point, so like a last straw. But there had been other uh, causes and concerns building up for years before this. Is that right? I, absolutely. I think uh, there are economic structural causes, double-digit unemployment, double-digit inflation, ritual despair over the possibilities of any improvement, right. uh, enormous corruption, enormous crony capitalism, enormous inequalities that are rising. There is structural political problem. Iran is a vibrant society, youthful society, ruled by septuagenarians and nanogenarians. Nanogenarians, that's a new word for me. Yeah, (laughs) I was looking for one that Uh describes someone who's 90, and Uh many of these people are over 90. Wow. And uh, their ideology is essentially that what worked for Muhammad in Islam in Medina 1,400 years ago should be the law of the land now. You can't run a modern society that way. Right. That has five and a half million college students. So that's the second structural problem, political. Okay. And all of these old men, they're all people that were originally part of the revolution, right? The more or less, right? They're so most, they're just holding on to that. Yeah. And they yeah. haven't renewed leadership beyond those that were part of that revolution, or are there some? There is a remarkable close knit of families, almost all clerical, 
okay. that have produced the Iranian elite. And it's a very close circuit of circulating elites. They're almost all connected to some major uh, clergy. And there's a word like the days that you studied Soviet Union, mm -hmm. uh, the nomenclatura, I think they used sure, to call it. Sure, of course, it. yes. Now they call them aghazadeh. Aghazadeh is what nomenclatura was. Those who have private access to rents, private access to information, private access to jobs. And people are sick and tired of this inequality. Right. And they've had enough. Well, tell us a little more about the structure of those that protested. Who are these people? Are they in terms of socioeconomic class and status? What regions are they from? And describe for us how they're different or similar than those that took to the streets in 2009. I think they were uh, very different than the uh, people in 2009. 2009, first of all, was essentially a major city phenomenon. Okay. Primarily focused on Tehran and a couple of other major cities, and primarily focused on the issue of a rigged election, what people thought was rigged election. This time... Remind our listeners what happened exactly. In 2009, so there was an election. Uh, Ahmadinejad was running for a re-election. Uh, Mr. Musavi, who was a reformist candidate, and by many, many accounts, including yours and I, uh, there was a rigged election. Right. And they pulled Ahmadinejad out of the boxes and people took to the streets. And the simple question was, what happened to my vote? Right. And the regime went on an absolute brutal suppression. Uh, Mr. Musavi has now been in prison, uh, house arrest, illegal house arrest, with no indictment against him, his wife with him. To this day, right? To this day. Uh -huh. Almost six and a half, seven years. Right. Uh, this time, uh, it was essentially a small town phenomenon. Huh. It was, Tehran was essentially a middle class, urban, educated right. uh, movement led by women and college students. This time, it was a small towns, many religious towns, many towns that had never participated in public demonstrations like this. Interesting. And it quickly morphed into radical anti-regime, anti-Khamenei, anti-dictator slogans, slogans against Iran's involvement in Syria, right? against uh, IRGC, uh, against the clergy. Explain what IRGC is. Uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. This is a, a militia, essentially, that the, uh, Mr. Khomeini created after the revolution. They <clears throat> were very clever. They didn't, contrary to what the U.S. did in Iraq, for example, they didn't dismantle the Iranian military. Right. They kept it. They decapitated it. Uh, but then they created their own parallel military. Okay. And every year, they strengthened the budget of this one and diminished the other one. That's called the IRGC. And what I think is important for the listeners to notice is that the word that is missing in IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, is the word Iran. Huh. That uh, relates to their global claims. Interesting. That relates to the fact that they don't see themselves as limiting to what the Constitution essentially right. mandates. Right. Uh, that's why they're in Syria. That's why they're in Lebanon. That's right. why they're in Iraq. And the protesters were specifically protesting those foreign uh, wars, right? They were very protest, very much protesting those foreign wars. One of the um, most uh, remarkable slogans was, neither Syria nor Lebanon think about Iran. Okay. Uh, 
And again, uh, this came after uh, the government for the first time decided to uh, have a more or less transparent budget. Most of the budget, most of it, uh, because m some of the money is in Iran, as you know, is very uh, close. It's very much like Russia. Right. But, off the books, right? Off the books. Yes. But the the bonyards, right? The... Bonyard, absolutely. Bonyard, and uh, there are special accounts. Reuters just recently said that Khamenei probably controls more money than Putin does, and mm. the tune of maybe $90 billion okay. unaccounted for. But the money that is in the government budget was for the first time published. And people realized the amount of money the IRGC was getting, some of uh -huh. these bonyards were getting, okay. religious endowments were getting. That helped create a sort of anger more and more. You could clearly see that there were demonstrations. So aside from the fact that it was in many small towns, at least 70 towns. 70? At, at least. Wow. Uh, in some towns, people took over a major building to give you a s sense of the symbolic uh, significance in the city of Khomeini Shah, named after Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, people burned the seminary that is named after Khomeini. It's like in, in Soviet Union going to Stalingrad right. and building, uh, burning the Communist Party headquarters. Wow. Uh, and the second remarkable difference with uh, 2009 was that it was primarily working class, uh, and if there was youth, it was essentially the working class, unemployed, disgruntled, before this religious youth. Right. There were massive demonstrations in Qom. Qom is the sort of Shiite capital of the world, essentially. Right, right. Uh, and for the first 48 hours, I think the regime was absolutely caught off guard. Because this traditionally hasn't been, haven't these kinds of people been their base of the support for the regime, or is that incorrect? Absolutely. This is the regime that has called itself the uh, regime of the dispossessed, the Mustazafan. Right. The, the way uh, Soviet Union claimed the proletariat. Right. The Mustazafan is more or less the same equivalent concept. So they have a major problem that their base is now rising up against them. And so their response has been repression, right? Uh, several thousand protesters have been arrested. People have died. What do you think comes of that? Can, can that kind of physical violence deter them, or, or will the regime be able to contain these demonstrations? Well, the regime has so far tried to contain it, exactly as you say, by violence. Okay. Uh, several thousand people uh, arrested by, on account, at least 4,000. Uh, or there are at 22, 20, at least 22 people killed in the streets. There are now at least five people who have been killed in prison. Five already. Five already. Wow. The regime has claimed in a really silly manner that they have all committed suicide. Right. Uh, but nobody is buying it. But I think there is awareness within the regime that this is more serious, that mere suppression just ain't going to do it. Okay. That's why both Khamenei, Rouhani, and almost everybody else has been very cautious uh, not to further wake up that giant. Uh-huh. Because I, I think they were very worried that if they say something stupid, they're going to anger the people. They've now begun to say some stupid things. So can they contain it tactically? I think they can. Can they solve it strategically? 
I don't think so. Well, tell us a little more about, if you think it's important, the different kinds of responses from different parts of the regime. So uh, there's been a debate in our papers and on Twitter about the nature of the the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, whether we should think about it. And you invoked the Soviet debates, uh, Soviet times. So I'm now remembering we used to have this debate about the Soviet Union, whether it was a totalitarian system or an authoritarian system. Um, uh, is there nuances between the supreme leader, Mr. Khamenei, and the president, Mr. Rouhani, or should we think them all as monolithically responding in one way? Help us understand better what you consider the political regime and how it's responding. I, I think it would be a great mistake to think that they're a monolith. Okay. Uh, I think there are profound divisions within them. It is equally folly to think that uh, the divisions within the regime are about anything other than ways to preserve the regime. To preserve the regime. They want that's to preserve a great, the regime. That's a great paradox to put together, yes. But the regime that Rouhani wants to preserve is very different than the regime that Khamenei wants to preserve. One is far more authoritarian, far more dogmatic, far more misogynist, far more anti-Semitic, far more anti-open economy, uh-huh. far more anti-open internet, Okay. But still the Islamic Republic. Right. Rouhani wants to preserve the Islamic Republic, but keeps saying, we can't keep women at bay. We can't close down the internet. We can't call people. He just yesterday, he called out one of the top leaders. He said, why do you call people garbage? Because the Friday prayer leader of Tehran said, people who came to demonstrate against us were the garbage of society. That's pretty provocative. That's exactly what Rouhani said. And Rouhani then responded, right? Rouhani responded and says, why do you call people? He said, not everybody who comes to the street is an agent of America. Right. There might be agents of America in there, but we have to ask, have we done something wrong? So there is a difference. But I think the big loser in this debate, in the debates inside Iran, were the reformists. Uh Uh-huh. Because Tell us more about that. The, the, the reformers were the people who were behind Musavi. Uh, they were the reformers were the people who were behind Mr. Khatami, who was very popular till now. Right, a former president. Former of Iran. president. But they were very late in making any statements. And when they made the statements, they were essentially beginning statements were all critical of demonstrations, calling them in seditions, calling them disturbances. Wow. Uh, and they lost an enormous amount of credibility. I'm not sure whether they can recover from all of this. Some of them soon realized the mistake they have made and began to realign themselves. But not initially. Not initially. Initially, virtually the entire reformist group came out saying, these are not uh, helpful. We need to go back to the ways of the reform. And people took to them in social media in ways that are absolutely incredible. And why is that, Abbas? Because the reformers wanted more incremental change, more, less confrontation? Help us understand that. You know, the, the benign interpretation is that they believe that only uh, incremental change is beneficial. Uh, the more uh, sort of sinister interpretation is that uh, they, were control- they were worried that they're losing control of the opposition. I and see. other people are coming to the fore, and they have more radical demands. Just yesterday, for example, to give you a sense of the internal dynamics, 
Mohsen Mahmal Bov, a very prominent filmmaker, who's won many, many awards. We had him at one of the conferences. I remember, if you yes. remember that. Yes. Uh, he wrote an open letter to Mr. Tajzadeh, one of the most prominent reformists. And basically in the letter says, shame on you people for not supporting the people and shame on you for supporting Khamenei. Because again, one of the fascinating debates in Iran and the debate that Iranian regime is very effectively using is that if these demonstrations continue, Iran will become another Syria. And you, the demonstrators, are responsible for the turning of Iran into a rubble the way Syria has become. I see. And Mahmal Baf wrote this very extensive letter that says, no, if Iran becomes a Syria, Iranian people are not responsible. It is Khamenei who's responsible. In fact, Khamenei is also responsible for what has happened in Syria with the help of Russia. So don't blame us for your intransigence. Wow. And Tajzadeh, just before coming here, I was looking to see whether there's something new. Tajzadeh said, I have received this letter. This is a very important letter. It's going to take me a couple of days to answer. <laughs> so there is this kind of a ferment. Interesting. Are there any bridge builders between the more urban-based reformers, uh, both protesters and in the regime, and these new protesters? Or there's no bridge, there's no obvious leadership that could bridge that gap yet? There is no leadership yet. And okay. one of the things, again, that many people have said is the weakness of this movement is that it ha it lacked a coherent, centralized leadership. But at the same time, this is one of the reasons that the regime had a very hard time uh, dealing right. with it. exactly. Uh, because it's so diffused. And it's truly, in my view, it's the perfect metaphor for the internet age. It's the age uh -huh. of network uh -huh. rather than structural hierarchies. Right. That's how people uh, organize. And to go back to your very good question of whether there are differences within the regime, the conservative camp said, let's shut down Instagram, let's shut down Telegram, right. let's shut down Twitter. This is how people organize. This is a cesspool. Right. Rohani said, no, that's not the way to do it. And they just basically have reopened almost everything. Do I not think that Rohani is opening it because he thinks that's the way to sustain himself? Yes. Right. But do I want to live in a society where internet is available rather than one that is completely shut down? I think the great majority of people in Iran would also say yes. Would also say, and I living outside because that's the way I communicate of with course. a lot of people inside Iran. Right. Interesting. We're running out of time, so let's pivot to us because we always have to talk about us, the Americans. President Trump has weighed in on Twitter uh, with some pretty uh, strong statements. What role is the Trump administration playing, and what role should the Trump administration or the United States in general play? Uh, I think um, the debate inside Iran and outside Iran uh, about the Trump administration goes into two extremes. Okay. Some who say... Because Mr. Trump lacks credibility, because of this uh, Muslim ban, because of uh, all the things he has done against Iran, and they have a litany of complaints, right. calling the Persian Gulf, the Arab Gulf, uh, siding with Saudi Arabia, silence in, about Saudi Arabia and Yemen. He has no credibility, and he shouldn't speak, because if he speaks, he damages the cause of the movement. Okay. 
There are others on the other side that said this is the best thing that has happened since ap uh, apple pie. This is, is completely behind uh, movement, and this is, is what's going to make the difference. My sense is that they're both wrong. Okay. <laughs> uh, the president of the United States, as president, has a, a great deal of authority, even if the person that holds it has squandered a lot of the credibility of that office. Right. So I think Mr. Trump, as the president of the United States, can do a lot of good. He needs to have more humility in his uh, support for the movement. Right. He needs to realize the constraints that America has had. He needs to emphasize that we are not going to try to pick a leader for you. We're not, to try, we're not going to try to bring a form of government and force it on you. Right. But as he famously said, we are watching. They should watch what the people of Iran want to do. Right. So my hope is that with humility, with less egoism, with less bombast, the support continues. And I think it can be very effective. And the most important thing, and you and I have said this before and some of the stuff we wrote on Iran, making information access easier, breaking the ability of the regime to censor internet right. Right. will go a long way in helping the democratic movement. Well, we'll continue to watch. Uh, we'll continue to bring you back, Abbas, because this is one of the most interesting, challenging, and maybe inspiring or maybe not events that we've had in, in recent memory with respect to Iran or the Middle East as a whole, for that matter. We couldn't be more thrilled than to have you here to talk about all the complexities because it, it cannot be simplified as I've heard you say on other programs. Uh, so thank you for taking a complex set of issues and helping us better understand it here at World Class. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies. Mm -hmm.